scriptures, um, and rightly so. Uh, the subject is pretty sobering. <clears throat> Who of us knew that Jesus talked that way? There's a lot of perceptions that Jesus is this meek and mild uh, uh, spiritual teacher who just, uh, you know, says nice things. Uh, who would have thought that his words are so disruptive and challenging? <clears throat> Self-awareness is something that is a, a concern for uh, those who teach self-defense. Have you ever been around self-defense teachers? Um, you think, well, they're all about karate chops and, uh, you know, uh, those kind of things. But a good self-defense teacher actually spends some time with, well, why don't we just avoid conflict? <laughs> why don't we just think about how to avoid the bad guy in the Walmart parking lot? <clears throat> how uh, about, how do we figure to think on our feet a bit to be more self-aware? Now, a, a self-defense instructor, a blogger actually out of Australia uh, was... Uh, he was trained himself in this, you know, self-awareness or, you know, situational awareness. And so he's pulled over to get a cup of coffee and his car is parked out on the street. And he's again practicing, like, where am I? Okay, what's going on around me? And he notices four girls walking uh, toward him, uh, teenagers, and they are all uh, on the sidewalk walking in a row. Now, they're all, in other words, sideways to the to the road there to the sidewalk and um, they're all on their phones walking on their phones now we've all seen that perhaps you've engaged in that I certainly have right Uh, they're walking shoulder to shoulder and uh, right in front of this instructor he's sitting in his car and right in front of him uh, two of these girls walk right into a street sign and they both hit the sign, uh, the, the sign with their foreheads together, and they make a clanging sound that he can hear. And they, without even looking up, they just shake their heads, rub their foreheads, and keep in step with their friends. <laughs> now, the two other friends didn't even look around, and... Uh, they didn't stop walking, and then all four of them got back into formation and kept walking. <laughs> he then writes and says, I wonder if this is an indication that the human race is shortly to come to an end. <laughs> if we don't have uh, self-awareness uh, to at least walk down the street, aren't we in trouble? Now, as, uh, as humorous as that story is, um, these girls, the, their lack of self-awareness, and I will insert myself, I understand that, we too lack self-awareness, and it, we are called as disciples to be watchful, not to uh, not regarding, well, street, it's always good to watch for street signs, but the watchfulness of Jesus is toward our own hearts. An inward watchfulness. Now we are top. We're looking at topics as we go through the book of Mark. I usually will take a book of the Bible and exposit the the book, usually verse by verse, right? So we'll look at a, a book of the Bible and just go chapter one, chapter two. So we're doing something a little bit different. We're doing a topical study, but I hope to present an exposition of this passage, all in the context of discipleship. Do. Do you imagine that you are called to be, first of all, a disciple? And do you imagine yourself understanding 
what it means to be called as a disciple. What are the ingredients of that? That's a kind of a Christian buzzword. And as I mentioned before I read scripture, the disciples have been observing an individual who was using faith and they cast out a demon. And they actually tell this individual that they, they tried to stop him. Now, this is the context in which Jesus speaks to his disciples in our text. And he warns the disciples about their lack of watchfulness. Verse 39, uh, just again, previous to our text, Jesus says, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. So Jesus lays down this principle of a strong, robust welcome. When you see someone doing something good in the name of Jesus, now they may not fit your stripe of Christianity, they may not understand Scottish Presbyterianism like you do or something, right? But they're doing something in the name of Jesus, and Jesus is telling his disciples, have a warm, open heart. Don't make the kingdom uh, more narrow than it already is. And so it's quite remarkable that Jesus now begins to talk about the seriousness of failing to look at yourself. So the disciples were busy looking at other people. Now that can be just a full-time occupation. You can spend 80 years doing that. Just looking at other people, just pausing. Look, look at that. Look at those people over there. Look at their problems. Look at that. This outward focus. Jesus puts a stop to the whole thing. Forget this outward focus. Let's let's look at you. Let's look at you. Jesus goes on to say, "For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water, verse forty-one, to drink because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward." So Jesus contrasts this great event of of, of an exorcism, which is amazing, and then he says, "Well, then he contrasts that with a small cup of water." Even people who give small cups of water or a, the, the act of something small is noticed as evidence that they are part of the kingdom. Now verse 42 is, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now that has the question is, is this talking about child abuse? Or, or is Jesus using the, the phrase little ones as an affectionate phrase for all believers? And I would say the context is telling us that this is for all genuine children of God. Sin, the sin that Jesus is highlighting is the sin of denying a fellow believer who in fact may be a young believer the comfort of knowing that they too are part of the kingdom. Now this might just awaken us to like, I mean, that's a serious thing. That's a serious thing. That's a serious thing. I'll tell you, as a pastor, I know that people are intimidated by the Bible. Uh, they are. And sometimes, like if we do a membership interview, people think it's going to be some big quiz. Okay, give me an outline of the book of Leviticus. You know? <laughs> no, it's not going to be that way. But we're intimidated, right? And then sometimes, as, as I have been around people who've been perhaps part of the church for a long time, and we begin to talk about their faith. I begin to realize that 
their assurance that they are really a believer is perhaps not that strong. They're picking up cues. They're wondering. They, they send out signals uh, about this insecurity. And as a pastor, I have to be very careful. I can communicate, just again on this theme of welcoming people, I can communicate to people that, well, really the only people who are really welcomed in the kingdom, well, they have their theological act together. Those are the people that God really loves. So how's your theology? Well, I'll tell you something. People who have simple faith in Jesus, just simple faith in Jesus, and they can't even spell the word theology, they are loved as much uh, by Jesus as a great theologian. So what we've got to do is we've got to realize, you mean welcoming people and, they, and having a large heart toward people, particularly our brothers and sisters? That's a big deal. And that, again, I'm, I'm trying to do a setup for you. What is Jesus talking about when he talks about being cast into the sea and going to hell and all this sort of, well, how can that be so serious? Well, I'll tell you something. We have to become aware of of something about our hearts. And let me give you just by way of an outline here. Awareness of our own indifference. You can see it there on your sermon page. Aware of God's sovereign rights. Aware of the causes of sin. Aware of the worth of the future kingdom. And awareness of the value of being salt. There's a lot of subjects. I was driving down here this morning going, oh man. If I keep thinking about this, there's probably 10 different subjects in this passage alone. But our key phrase is watching the heart, is watching the heart. And so let's explore this. This first area is, I'm just going to call it indifference. The indifference, uh, the indifferent heart, or having a, a lack of understanding that I am indifferent. That's where Jesus is catching his, his disciples. He's catching his disciples where they just are indifferent toward the goodness of this, what someone else has done. They put the emphasis upon being part of the club of Jesus, us four and no more. And so what Jesus is highlighting is that you, have, you don't have a, a warm, welcoming heart. So awareness of my own indifference is a key, key step. It's like very similar to what C.S. Lewis said, that if we're aware of our pride, well, guess what? Pride probably isn't, it will continue to be a struggle, but even awareness about it is probably fixed. That means that the cure is underway inside you. So awareness of my own indifference. So whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now, we usually don't teach that, that kind of thinking around here. We always say, well, you choose, it's from your own heart that you, right, that you sin. But here Jesus is saying, well, you can cause someone else to sin. That's kind of unusual. How, do you, how does that happen? It means that you have taught them or you communicate to them in nonverbal or verbal ways. You just don't belong. And they're going to interpret that. And this, I'll just tell you quite frankly, this is just not that big a deal in the church today. Welcoming people. It's just not a big deal. I come to church for my own needs, hope the sermon's good, nice songs. We just don't, we're not other, others oriented. Perhaps you with young children, you got enough going on trying to figure out all the going on, and I empathize with you. 
But there's not going to be a, a callous indifference among the, the disciples. They're going to go out to non-Jewish world. They're going to, it's not going to be buddy-buddy. They're going, to go, they're going to move out into the world where they're not going to be welcomed. And they're going to have to communicate welcome. Many Christians do not have these soft skills. The soft skills of just greeting someone. Now, um, January 6th, I was in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Chattanooga, Tennessee has been rated the place of greatest biblical literacy in the United States. I don't know how they figured that out, but did you know that? So, with this town of the greatest literacy among Christians, so they know, they can outline Leviticus, right? Okay? All right, let's see what happens in Chattanooga with your pastor. Are you ready? So, at 8 o'clock in the morning, I attend a PCA church. Now, there's dozens of them there, so you'll never be able to figure out which one it was. So I'm there, 8 o'clock in the morning on January 6th. Brandon's preaching here, and I'm there. 8 o'clock in the morning, beautiful morning, man. Stained glass windows. The sun's just really coming through there. It's, uh, you know, it's 44 degrees outside. And it's, I won't tell you how cold it is inside the church, but here we go. Ready? So I'm there. I'm there about 20 to 8, sitting all by myself. I realize no one is going to greet me. No one's going to say hello to me. So I go sit with someone. And then after the service, guess what I do? I stand up. Now, people are flooding out, right, down the center aisle. Well, I'm a salmon going upstream. And I go upstream against every face. And I look at everyone who can see me. I look at everyone. I look at, the, I look at 18, 20 faces, 20 eyes. Not a single hug, not a single greeting for me. Now, that is a gospel-literate church, meaning you're going to hear a great gospel sermon. But I'll tell you that, if I've ever gotten close to being Jesus in the temple, that was the moment. I was about to throw up. If I could pick up one of those pews, I was about to throw it. High-powered theology without a warm heart to people who can't even spell theology, it is worthless. It's religious people Jesus is talking to. You understand that? It's religious people. He's calling them, saying you're indifferent. You, 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 you failed the test. You see, what happens is this. People are much more insecure than you imagine. And they're picking up signals and vibes all the time. My first theological thought, I, I came to faith in Christ at 19. I can still remember it. I remember the moment. I remember my conversion. My first theological thought was sitting in church in Fallbrook, California, and I had just been presented this glorified, risen, sovereign King Jesus who knocks people off donkeys who are on the way to Damascus. Saul of Tarsus, scared. It, I, it was the most uncomfortable sermon ever. 
If you ask me after church, how was the good news today? I, man, that's nothing but bad news. But God was working on my heart, and as the, the, the depth of sin of Saul's heart was revealed in that sermon, I'm like, man, I'm in that line. My first theological thought was a heresy. I've recovered. My first theological thought was this. God must do that for important people. <clears throat> See, it would be a friend of mine five days later who would come up to me and say, after I explained to him, I can't stop thinking about Jesus, I want to read the Bible, I can't stop thinking about Jesus, I want to read the Bible. My friend John Lucas looked at me in the eye and said, I think you became a Christian. When Jesus says in verse 50, have salt in yourselves, it's odd what salt you all know about the preserving of meat in the ancient world. Have salt in yourselves means this. This kingdom has to be real and a welcoming kingdom. It has to be, you've got to have salt in yourselves, and if you cannot do these kinds of things, then your salt is worthless. What are these things? Speak words of welcoming grace to people. Open your heart to them. Yes, there's a place to censor people. Yes, there's a place to uh, yes uh, talk about church discipline. Yes, that is the entrusted to the elders. Our words are to build up. Now, verse uh, wow, this whole passage is secondly. This whole passage is about God's an awareness of God's sovereign rights. Let me read the, the, the rest of verse 42 for you. Uh, it would be better for him who causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, a millstone was a huge stone that was attached to a, 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 a wooden pole and a donkey would move around in, circle, in circles and they would grind wheat with this great stone. And Jesus says it would be better that this person be drowned than to commit uh, this sin. Or I would say this pattern of sins. Because we all can have a coldness of heart from time to heart time. But it's a, it's a condition of the heart, a condition of the heart that is perpetual and enduring. Awareness of God's sovereign rights. What Jesus is saying is, you've got to take all the categories of your life, including a welcome of people, take all the categories of your life and realize there is a pattern for the kingdom disciple. There's a pattern. And callous indifference has no place in it. God has a sovereign right to determine for us how we welcome people, how we use our words. God has a sovereign right over that. Now, when we think about God's sovereign rights, he has a sovereign right to, to express his just and holy wrath against sinners. 
and to sin willfully against an infinite being when you know better is to be in danger of an infinite punishment. There is no way to, to, to minimize what Jesus is saying here. He mentions three times the word hell in this passage. Jesus is purposely disruptive when he speaks this way. The nature of the offense is ultimately not against a person, but it is against God. We have failed to love our brother as ourselves, our neighbor as ourselves. Now, our modern world has been greatly influenced by Western thought, our Western modern world, and we have had philosophers and big thinkers uh, influence us And it used to be that people thought this way in the academy, scholars, even preachers, philosophers. They thought this way. Well, desire must conform to truth. But our modern philosophers went this way. Truth must conform to our desires. This is why the sexual revolution, quote, quote, of the 1960s led to the abortion law of 1973. The sexual freedom of the 1960s had this thing called children who were produced from it. This consequence. So now how do we adjust the laws of the land to conform with our desires for free sex? see what happened? So its desire is now shaping, quote, quote, truth. 20th century philosophers are characterized as lovers of humanity. I could list a number of them now. Many of them, in their own sexual lives, treated people like Kleenex. And their biographers, at first, were a little bit hesitant to write about this these lovers of humanity who now treat people very poorly, serial adulterers, and now more honesty is being expressed about their very lives. Their desires ruled them, and they formed philosophies of life to conform with their desires. What Jesus is saying is get a hold of your desires. Get a hold of them. There is grace. There is power. The Spirit of God is active in you. Get a hold of your desires. Find them. Discover them. And this leads us to the third idea. Awareness. The third awareness. The awareness of the causes of sin. Jesus lists three body parts. The hand, the foot, and the eye. Verses 43 through 47. And the point is that there are going to be various places in our lives, various areas of our lives that have not yielded yet or are struggling to yield to the grace that has saved us. And Jesus is proposing a radical uh, 
severing, uh, addressing these issues. Now, we emphasize here a great deal at Trinity Presbyterian Church the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And that means that this radical acceptance by Jesus means that God has accepted you fully and is no longer at war with you, no longer wrathful toward you. But Luther said that we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. And our faith is a fighting faith. Our faith is a powerful faith. And our faith is working in in concert with the Holy Spirit, bearing fruit. The fruit can be described in the big word, sanctification, holiness. Now what Jesus is describing here in Mark 9, the parallel passage in, the God, in Mark's, excuse me, in Paul's thought is Romans 8:13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Puritans called this mortification of sin. Jesus is saying, go to the causes of your sin. Go to the deep cause. The hand, perhaps illustrating what you can steal or get away with. The foot, illustrating what you can run to, where you can travel to. The eye, what looks desirable to you. This is to awaken anyone who's sleepwalking through life. We just think, I don't know, this is just who I am. Just who I am. I was born this way. These are the tendencies. This is my DNA. And then the excuses begin to develop, and we live in them. Or it's just too hard. Some of us may have tried to sort of resist desire, some sinful desires, and we just we, we find it to be too hard. And so we abuse grace. We don't fight by grace. We are ruled by these desires. And even good things, by the way, good things can morph into a sinful desire to possess them in such a way that we are seen in a certain way. Uh, having a good family, that's a wonderful thing. Having a nice family, beautiful. Having uh, obedient children, fantastic. Can you see how that can morph into something too important? You become angry towards your children because they don't appear a certain way before others. Something good, right? Can become a must-have. Beneath the sin of pornography is a deeper, more insidious sin. The, idol- the idolatry of self. I'm free to see whatever I want. The idolatry of self imagines a world, that a fantasy world. Underneath the adulterer isn't necessary, necessarily lust or affection. Could be. But often pride is the sin beneath the sin. I believe that not only do I have a wife, but I can have lovers on the side. Well, what produces that? Lust, perhaps, but pride. The idolatry of self, finding what it needs, admiration, stimulation. Jesus is telling his disciples 
take a look at the evil desires reflecting Colossians 3.5. The, the Greek word is epithumai. You have an epidermis, right? Uh, epi, the word meaning upon. Thumai, the word evil. Epithumai, the, the evil desires that are upon you too much. Rule you. What owns you. Colossians says, put to death evil desires. Jesus repeats the same thing. And he does it with radical words. If it's your eye, gouge it out. Lose something you feel entitled to have. The shock we have when we hear Jesus talk this way is intended. We are shocked to hear Jesus say that we should lose something that seems so normal to us. And this is what happens. Isn't it odd when we see someone like a serial killer and we look at them and they look, what? Do they look evil? They actually don't. They look normal. And then when they're in the courtroom, they seem normal and they have not normal pleasantries toward their self, toward their defense lawyers. The, The the, uh, the German uh, uh, officers running the, the concentration camps and the death chambers don't seem rational, logical people. In other words, evil that is not understood at this level always seems to appear to be normal. And Jesus argues it would be better. Be better what? Be better that you suffer or appear to suffer than to go into hell with both your eyes or both your hands or your feet. It's, of course, hyperbole in a sense, isn't it? Jesus doesn't intend for us to literally do this, but to have that desire. Now, How do we apply this particular area? The causes of sin, I hope that we could be open about. I am frustrated in my life and I'm being tempted this way. Wouldn't it be great to be part of a church that way? I'm going to throw you out, throw stones at you. I don't understand that. We feel the the weight of of some, some ideal that we have. Maybe some Christian ideal we have. And we just don't feel like we're fulfilling it. And we... We can feel that we're actually after something that is, that is sinful, even though it's good. I'm fearful of my unresting desire. I'm unresting and unrelenting desire for physical satisfaction. What can break through that is honesty and awareness that there is a battle underway. Isn't this true for alcoholics and Alcoholics Anonymous? They have to admit the the truth. They're no longer hiding behind it. Are the disciples told to say, I mean, is Peter going to say, what what are you kidding? You kidding me? I don't have have any need to do that. The disciples are now going to look in their hearts and see, oh, this is what being a disciple in the kingdom looks like. Fourth idea, awareness of the worth of the future kingdom. Jesus is presenting it. It's the value of eternal life. It's the value of the eternal kingdom that is to drive this. 
John Calvin said, we cannot aspire to him in earnest until we have begun to be displeased with ourselves. That's that's one of the top ten most brilliant things that's ever been said outside of the Bible. We cannot aspire to him in earnest until we have begun to be displeased with ourselves. For what man is not disposed to rest in himself? There it is. God in his grace has brought this disturbing news to you. You mean I've got to fight this way? Yep. Stop resting in yourself. Chattanooga Church. Stop it. Begin to live by faith. Get out of your country clubbiness. Get out of this. The kingdom is big. The kingdom is big. The kingdom is big. Have a heart for people. Jesus is challenging the resting in oneself with the desire for the future kingdom. If you're going to rest in yourself, then what you're going to do is this. You're going to say, well, the future kingdom is just not worth it. You're making an estimation. I'm not going to suffer. I'm not going to, I'm not going to suffer. I'm not going to deny myself. And that's the age we live in. It is, who's going to deny you? Your spouse is going to deny you? Your church is going to deny you? Your Bible? Your Jesus? What on earth is this? This is, this is the spirit of our age. Express yourself. Every desire is legitimate. Everything you want should not be challenged. And, and where has this all led to, by the way? Just the last 40 years in particular. Chaos. Disruption. Division. Strife. The resting in yourself. And so, if you walk away today and you just say to yourself, Wow, I... Wow, I, 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 I got to get moving. I got to take this. Re, I got, this is real. There's some things in my life I'd like to change. If you just if you just do that, you stop resting in yourself. This isn't going to happen. This change, the change isn't going to happen overnight. But we will be like the prodigal who came to his senses, realizing there's a home to return to. There's a place of fullness. Jesus is after life. This is not. Uh, this is not yet again Moses on the mountain. Sort of, sort of prescribing just law to us. And I hope you can see there's a grace in this. Someone's being stern and direct to us. If you've ever had anyone do that for you in your profession, in your work, someone just talks straight to you. And then a couple years later you go, that was the best stuff I've ever gotten in my life. That's, what we, that's how we should respond to this. It is good that we cut off our wills. And sometimes I look around my my house and I look at my wife and I see her serving me continually, continually, effortlessly, lovingly. And and I think about myself and I go, uh, uh, it it feels like such a big effort on my part to serve her. (laughs) It's just craziness. And she'll ask for some simple thing and I'll feel like, oh my goodness, she wants me to build a house for her. Do you sense how strong-willed you are? Do you sense it? Strong-willed. The disciples look at someone who just cast out a demon. I've never done that. And they go, you stop that. You're not part of our club. Don't ever do that again. (laughs) And Jesus says, if you don't get a grip on yourself, you're in danger of hell itself. How about that for how about that for some discipleship training? 
I don't even know if I have that. Do they sell that in books, in Christian bookstores? Do they sell it like that? Be watchful. You see, all I want you to go away with is, uh, and, and finally, well, I'm I just running out of time here. I've realized I've gone so long. And um, the salt business, the salt there, the verse, verse 49 and 50, everyone will be salted with fire. Jesus is saying that, that, that there will be radical tests coming for you. There will be fire. The fire is not referring to at all hell. It, the fire is talking about the trials ahead. And you cannot lose the salt in yourself. And what's the salt? The salt is the ever-present kingdom in you, producing the virtues of the kingdom. That's the salt. And if you lose that, it means you, you never had it. So Jesus just tells them, have salt in yourself. Just like salt makes everything preserved in our world, the ancient world, right? Have salt in yourself. That's his conclusion. And then he finally concludes that this is really somewhat of an odd thing. He says, have peace in yourselves. Be peaceable. It's like, what? how does that alert? Well, it connects back to their, their, their judgment on the guy who did the, the exorcism. The pres- You're in the kingdom because God's grace is preserving you. Now have this grace in you and extend it to others by being peaceable to others. The kingdom is not about strife-producing censorship of other brothers. Be at peace with each other. Don't lose your salt. What a great story it is, though. Because they didn't. They didn't. And they welcomed the world. They stumbled, but they welcomed the world. They, they had to be driven out of Jerusalem to love the world, but they loved the world in a similar way that God does. Lord, this has been a big moment uh, for us in this journey of discipleship. Give us the humility to receive your word. Give us the desire to fight that we might be salt. Give us hearts for people, hearts like your heart toward us. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.